Alexis Alexander, and this is The Off-Duty Diplomat, a podcast about the 10 years I worked for the U.S. Department of State. Welcome to a very special bonus episode of The Off-Duty Diplomat. This is our first ever explainer episode. I realized with everything going on in Israel right now, many of you might be wondering what historical context led to the events currently unfolding. Since I lived and worked in Israel at the U.S. Embassy from 2016 to 2018, I thought I would offer my perspective on the international relations lead up to the tragic and horrifying events that have been taking place since Saturday, October 7th. I also speculate on what is likely to happen next from a diplomatic perspective. I won't pretend this is a complete or a comprehensive recounting of every seminal event that has shaped the relationship between Israelis, Palestinians, and the rest of the world, but it is a simplified, basic, nuanced overview from the perspective of both a former diplomat and student of conflict resolution. Just to pre-correct myself on a few points, I don't mention it, but East Jerusalem is also considered a Palestinian territory. The Oral Torah, or Talmud, was compiled from 400 to 1200 CE. Finally, we don't get to discussing the peace agreements and solutions proposed over the history of this conflict, but I will get to it in future episodes. I know it's long and it's not perfect, but I hope you find it useful. Uh, And finally, I stand with all those impacted by these events, and I sincerely hope there will be no further loss of life. That here we go. All right. Welcome, everyone, to a very special bonus episode of the Off-Duty Diplomat. Uh, It's me, Alexis, and I'm here with Fallon. Uh, And in case you've been living under a rock or just not checking the news, like I think most of us do at this point, uh, Israel is at war um, with the terrorist group Hamas that has also been the ruling body in the Gaza Strip for quite a while. Um, at this point, I believe on both sides, the death toll is around a thousand and climbing very unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, um, since season two of this podcast is going to pretty much entirely center on Israel, because that's where my second tour was in the foreign service. I really wanted to stop and kind of address what's happening right now, because I think it would be crazy not to, uh, Fallon, anything to add there? Um, I will say the date just to kind of timestamp this. It is October 10th um, because the thing that made me think about that sadly was the death toll because I have a feeling it will grow. And depending on whenever people listen to this, that might not be accurate. Um, I don't know. This kind of sucks. I was in a news bubble and scrolling on Twitter and then this kind of just like burst my bubble. So I've been going down a wormhole of trying to find decent funds of information that I can trust to actually figure out what's going on. Because, you know, I said this plenty of times, I don't have a foreign policy background. I'm just like a regular person that does like media stuff. But I'm curious about like history always have been. So like I've known about how Israel was created and all this other type of stuff, but I never truly understood the implications of that, the how that sits in context now, 50 some odd years later. And I never really understood why there was always so much fighting and tension over there. So I don't find myself knowing more. But yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of sad, too, just because people are dying and, you know, ha- going through something where a lot of people died personally. And dealing with how people were talking about it that weren't impacted by it personally. I'm also super, super, super sensitive to that. And I don't necessarily enjoy the way that it's being talked about. So I'm selfishly happy that you're willing to talk about it because I think this conversation might be a lot easier for people to digest and a lot more human centered than what I've been seeing. Yeah, that's, those are all incredible call-outs. And um, 
you know, thank you, I think, for kind of focusing us and hopefully everyone listening to on sort of the human toll that these things take. I think, um, you know, diplomacy is kind of only I think people care about like when it has failed, quote unquote, you know, it's like during mm-hmm. wars when everyone's like, well, why couldn't this have been solved without the violence? Um, and how did we get to this point? Um, and, you know, the work that I did and the work that a lot of my colleagues are continuing to do is sort of all preemptive. It's always trying to avoid what could happen. Uh, and so I do want to kind of just tie us back to the reason why we do what we do. And it's to avoid things like loss of life and obviously the trauma that's going to envelop, you know, an entirely new generation of both Israelis and Palestinians um, who were directly experiencing these unfortunate events as they unfold. So I think with Mm. that, I just want to quickly run through a little bit of what we're looking at on the ground right now, or at least what's being reported about what's happening on the ground. Um, I'm on the New York Times website, um, basically on October 7th, which would have been a Saturday, which in Israel is Shabbat. It's, uh, you know, the day of rest for those who are observant. In addition, it was Simchat Torah, which is a religious celebration, a religious holiday in Judaism also. So in many ways, this is going to have strong echoes for anyone who is aware of it to um, the Yom Kippur War uh, in Israel that happened really 50 or 60 years ago. But it was a really seminal event in Israeli history. It was one of the days that could have led to the end of the country as a whole. Uh, and so Hamas, the terrorist organization, choosing a religious holiday again to attack um, is really going to going to echo that um, fear and terror. And what we're looking at is that Hamas mounted a highly coordinated invasion of Israel, um, somehow getting out of the Gaza Strip where they are. Uh, operating both as a governing force and also as a terrorist organization officially. Just for those who aren't aware, that territory is heavily fortified on all sides um, by both fences, other barricades, checkpoints. So the fact that Hamas was able to exit and attack multiple points in Israel at the same time is pretty striking and significant and shocking. And when I look at sort of the map that the New York Times has provided, it looks like something like maybe 12 or 13 separate um, fronts to this sort of guerrilla warfare attack um, are currently still in active use. And that includes places like Sterot, which I think is the largest city currently involved um, in active fighting. But the militants made it all the way to Ashkelon, which is, you know, five to 10 miles um, outside of the Gaza border. Um, Gaza, it looks like the attacks are happening mostly within a uh, 20-mile radius of the border itself. So basically as far as the militants could get before they ran into the Israeli Defense Forces, as well as there being um, a series of rocket attacks coming out of Gaza that were meant to hit different Israeli targets at the same time. Um, this is also where we kind of get into what the Israeli response has been, and they have been attacking Hamas targets, which unfortunately also are civilian targets within the Gaza Strip. So at the time that we are recording this, which Fallon pointed out, it's Tuesday, October 10th, there are over a thousand reported, um, estimated who have died from the, both the attack and the retaliation. And yeah, so that's kind of where we're at right now. I believe that Israeli defense forces are, Closing in on each of the sites one by one, trying to retake the streets um, and then eventually resecure the Gazan border. I think one outline question is sort of how intense the response retaliation is going to be from the Israeli government sort of once they have the situation in hand. Prime Minister Netanyahu has already declared basically a full war. And declaration has been so far supported by all of their major allies, except for Russia, which I think is another interesting international relations uh, tidbit there. But yeah, so sort of with all of that, Fallon, anything to add? Any? <laughs> We've been talking for a while, so I just thought I would check in with you and see if you no, got any. I'm just sitting here just processing all the stuff that you said, just because, I don't know, for me, again, like I said, I was in a news bubble. I've been dealing with my own stuff (laughs) and um, 
taking in any kind of energy, especially something like big like this was not something that I had on my bingo card for this week <laughs> at all. My biggest question is, I have two questions. I don't know if you can answer them, but I don't know if I'm alone in this. How did we get here? Like, how did we get from Israel being formed to them being at war right now? And the allies, that part is sticking out to me. Um, I'm trying to figure out, because I also saw a statement that um, I think uh, Biden and the president, the UK president and like, uh, you know, the allies put out about supporting Israel equivocally. I'm just curious, again, how that unequivocal support got here. How? How? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, those are such big questions, Val. (laughs) I I know that's why I'm like, I don't know if you can answer them. But you asked, and that's what I'm thinking. I I love it. I think that's probably the question everyone probably has, you know, unless you're deeply personally connected to this. Uh, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you answers. I'm going to give you my answers and I'm going to do my best to keep them as TLDR as possible. So please interrupt me and tell me to keep it short because like many foreign okay. policy wants, I can just go on forever on this stuff. So that's one thing <laughs> I wanted to say up at the front of this. This other thing I really want to reiterate is I am not now a member of the state department, which hopefully everyone listening knows by now. What I'm saying reflects my own experience, my educational background, and what I have lived uh, through the course of my career. But I am not speaking for the Department of State. I'm not speaking on behalf of the U.S. government. I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone except for Alexis Alexander. And so with that, let's jump into Fallon's first question, which is, how do we get here? I'm not going to run through the whole history of Israel, number one, because I am not a Middle East scholar. And number two, because it's just too long. There's too much. If you are interested in that information, there are so many great books and articles and videos available. I will say almost everything you're going to find on this topic has a, uh, if not an agenda, a strong perspective. So I would encourage you to read multiple uh, accounts of how everything pulled together because all, like, again, <laughs> almost everybody who wrote anything about this topic ever has fully their own, uh, dog in the fight. So do your research. This is a complex topic. I know it, it is, uh, which is why it's still on the forefront of foreign policy fully, what, 80 years after the funding of, of Israel as a country. So we get Oh, man. Where do I even start with this? Israel came to be a country in 1948. Obviously, that's right after World War II has ended. Um, Everyone hopefully is aware of the Holocaust and atrocities committed against Jewish communities across all battlefronts of that war and the persecution that they faced as a people even before that war kicked off. So there has always been a Jewish nationalist statehood movement. It used to be called, well, it's still called Zionism. Um, It came really into strong popularity in Europe, both Eastern and Western in the 1880s. And so by the time we get to the 1940s, when sort of those who survived the Holocaust and their families are sort of thinking, okay, what happens now? You know, do we just reintegrate into our old communities or try to reintegrate into our old communities, many of which have been completely destroyed, decimated? And many of which are just uh, undesirable because, you know, in some cases, in many cases, those who were slaughtered by the Nazis were sold out by their neighbors who were non-Jews. And so there's this real distrust in sort of trying to reintegrate into, you know, the old countries that that those communities were from. Uh, And so Zionism really picks up steam during and after World War II among a lot of those um, surviving Jewish communities and groups. There's a mass uh, migration to Israel in the years leading up to 1948. And so a lot of events occurred that led to Israel becoming a state and being officially recognized as one. But I think what I want to point out here is there's this international sense of guilt about the failure to, number one, stop. Number two, properly address the damage done to those communities during the Holocaust among 
you could say sort of host or participating nations at that time, the chief of which is obviously going to be Germany. Um, but you also get that same energy from France. You get it from Great Britain. And so there's this whole big sort of, and I think this gets to your second question, which is like, what do you, why are these people still allies of Israel? And I think it's because there is this understanding that, wow, we really failed, you could say, quote unquote, the Jews during World War II. And so we owe them support for the Jewish state, quote unquote, Jewish state um, after its formation and moving forward. Now, once yeah. Israel, go ahead. No, because I'm just like, I, and it's, that actually makes a lot of sense because going back to kind of what you were saying about anybody writing about this has a dog in the fight. All the people who, hmm, I'm trying to think of a word that doesn't have a negative connotation. The first word that comes to mind is conspired. Ooh, collaborated. There it is. Collaborated. The people who collaborated <laughs> to construct this state, you know, they have a dog in the fight and have had a very specific dog in the fight from day zero. Yeah. It's almost like <laughs> I hate to use this analogy, but again, I'm trying to just talk about it like the regular people talk about things. Don't mean no offense. It's like being made, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like we created this. This is our baby. And now we have this duty to take our baby to where, you know, make sure the baby has whatever it needs. That is a very interesting way to think about this that I don't think I've ever <laughs> thought about before. Yes. So that's us taking a very Europe centric view of sort of what the international relations fallout is around Israel as a country. The European nations, for the most part, and this is a massive overgeneralization, oversimplification, but for the purposes of moving this forward, that's where the European nations are at and mostly have been since the creation of Israel. It's very much this sort of guilt, energy. And so you'll see that play out in the, in the relationship moving forward. That also gets complicated too when we talk about Russia and we enter the Cold War because that also changes a bit. And also, well, this is extra, but early Israel was very socialist um, in the way the government structured, in the way the country itself was set up. So even now, the oldest Israeli institutions are extremely socialist in, in their foundation, the way they operate, the ethos behind them, and so on. So they kind of were in this in-between ground in many ways where it's like kind of socialist, but not like pro-SSR. Anyway, so that's that piece of it. As soon as Israel's founded, it's attacked by all neighboring nations because at this same time, the what we're now calling Palestinians, but I, I would just say the non-Jewish residents of that particular chunk of land believed that they were going to get uh, recognized for independence, or I should say they had been pushing towards their own independence movement from Great Britain, which at the time was the colonial power in charge of that area. So, and I'm talking this whole area. So like Egypt, all the way up to Lebanon, all of that had been under British control by the time we get to World War II. So I'm jumping in now for a geography question, yeah. just because I want to stay with you. <laughs> and now my geography brain is tingling because I'm like, wait, what do you mean? And so now I'm realizing I don't understand the countries or the pieces of land or the, the, what the land was called before what we now know as Israel. Does that make sense? Yes. I don't feel like I'm making sense. <laughs> and that's also a political question. So what? The way How this is that political? <laughs> <laughs> Why can't it just be geography? Oh girl. Huh. The way this land is named, the way it is referred to is quite political. So what? There are people who would say that what the land before uh I should say during the British occupation would have been called Palestine. Um, but that's separate from Egypt. It's just that the British Empire was in control of all of that land. So Palestine, the, you know, territory of Palestine at that time, um, also had its own national independence movement. And so I think, I, not I think, I know, it was obviously very disruptive, uh, <laughs> kind of calamitous, frankly, for the non-Jewish population of the area when Israel received international recognition as a Jewish state. So now you have this country that has a Jewish population 
and it has a non-Jewish population. Now, people want to simplify this to Jewish and Muslim. You could do that. I just want to point out there were Christian communities and there are Christian communities still living within. There's almost always a little bit of everybody everywhere. So miss me with that, period. And there were, but but if we're talking numerically, yes, the Jewish and the and the Muslim populations are the most numerous, and they're certainly the most visible at this point. So Mm. After Israel's declared a state, those Arab populations start to either flee or be pushed out of their homes because as soon as Israel's declared a state, the neighboring uh, nations all attack. So which ones were those? Do you know which ones were those? So we're talking about a pretty immediate and coordinated attack on Israel, including Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria. Yeah. Mm, okay. I just looked at a map. Yeah. I'm a visual person. I'm just like, she's talking and I'm, I want to stay here, but she's losing me. Cause I don't, I don't really know. I can't visualize it. Yeah. So there are five nations that invaded, um, Israel as soon as it declared itself an independent Jewish country and yeah, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, uh, and Saudi Arabia technically sent people to fight, but they fought under the Egyptian command. Was this in 1967? This is 1948. So this is immediately after Israel declared independence. Oh, ah, okay. Because I know there was another war in 67 too, as well. So we're going to talk about 67. We're also going to talk about 73. Because that 73 is the Yom Kippur War, which is the one that kind of harkens back to what just happened. So 1948, everybody invades. Israel is fighting for its existence. And all of the non-Jewish inhabitants, many of them, not all, I shouldn't say all, but many of them are pushed from their homes by the fighting or by the fear of invasion or the fear of retaliation. So at the time that the, you know, Israel was declared a state, you had Arab communities, or I should say non-Jewish communities living all over. Um, And it is a result of both the 1948 war the 1967 war and the 1973 wars that the majority of the non-Jewish population, Muslim population ends up cordoned off into the Gaza Strip, which is the place that the Hamas attacks originated. And then also Mm -hmm. into the West Bank, which is a separate area that's to the Northeast uh, in Israel. You can see that on any map. It'll have little chunks carved out usually for Gaza and the West Bank. Um, and yeah. in addition, many Palestinians simply fled the country altogether. So you had a large population support into Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, uh, and Jordan. And a lot of those communities still live there today, especially in Jordan, has a large uh, population of Palestinians in exile living within its borders. So to simplify, every time one of those wars happens, the boundary for where Palestinian um statehood could still occur becomes tighter and tighter Mm -hmm. every single time that one of those wars happens the boundaries get redrawn and the space for the palestinians gets smaller and smaller and so if you look at different maps from across these time periods you'll see that the borders get redrawn each time um and especially the 1973 war israel captured like actually a significant amount of territory um that they then ended up ceding and in exchange for either peace agreements, peace talks, or basically like non-aggression agreements with their surrounding neighbors and nations. So one thing that happens is, and I think this is maybe clear from what I've been saying, but a Palestinian statehood has always sort of had the sympathy and support of the Muslim nations in the surrounding area. So Obviously, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt all border Israel, but I'm also talking about Iran. Uh, I like there, you know, for the last roughly 80 years, like I said, pretty much every um, Muslim nation has had sort of a pillar of its foreign policy that is about supporting Palestinian statehood and being very anti Israel's existence, depending on which of them you're talking to and how severe the language is. So that's kind of like, honestly, it's your second question because there are two sort of big coalitions in this internationally. There's like Europe feels so guilty pro Israel. Also, this is all bulwark against cold war inclusion in the middle East. Come on bulwark. (laughs) And as we move forward, they now are our closest ally in the region 
because of the way obviously things have shaken out with other Middle East policy moving forward. So in many ways, like Europe's closest relationship in the Middle East is always Israel. We flip the other side yeah. of that on the Palestinian end of it. It's not just the Palestinians and I, and it's not just the Palestinians, but it's also all of the surrounding Muslim countries that are kind of officially and unofficially on their side. So that carries on into trade agreements, yep. shipping lanes, all kinds of stuff, which is why Israel has been super duper isolated from its own region, even though it has very close relationships with European and Western nations. But to me, that was a thank you for that, first of all. <laughs> and the fact that you kind of just did that off the dome, like she's out here just doing this off the dome, just so people know. Um, with some research, I'm sure. But again, she just waxed poetic <laughs> on her own. I love it. But sounds like to me, the through line here or the mustard seed <laughs> is Europe. Because <laughs> I've been over here trying to do my Google so I could come to this you know, conversation with a little bit of something. And I found this really awesome article because, again, your girl is visual. BBC News did a Israel's Borders Explained in Maps. And so I was literally scrolling through that and looking at the borders and how they changed. We should put this in the show notes. Bruh, like Syria was colonized by the French. Iraq was colonized by Britain. Yeah, it's I'm like, I blame them, yo. I blame them. <laughs> I blame the colonizers. To me, it's like all the colonizers are usually the reason for the season. I'm also like, wow, how do they kind of just like, you know, throw a dart at the map and kind of decide that the Palestinians like like were they not owed anything? Because, again, it seems like, unfortunately, the saddest part about this story for me, because I'm thinking about it like a story is like you have these Jewish folks and these Palestinian folks who are suffering like the same fate in different places, like they're struggling with the same problem. Like they all they want is to have a place of their own. And for whatever reason, they just didn't. Well, we know why we just talked about why for a whole bunch of reasons. Excuse me. They didn't get it. But one bad decision does not beget another. <laughs> one bad turn does not deserve another. And I know we're going to zoom to what's happening right now, which is objectively messed up <laughs> on all sides. On all sides. Period. Because there's no way for I don't know if there's a way for Israel to militarily only target Hamas. I don't know if there's a way that you can militarily solve these problems without killing more people, which is why going back to the beginning of the situation, diplomacy exists. <laughs> so now I'm wondering now I'm wondering, oh, two more questions, two more big questions. One thing I haven't heard you talk about is the U.S. You have not talked about what dog we have in this fight. It specifically, it was mostly Europe. I was listening. I heard mostly Europe. So I'm now curious about how we can kind of tie in the U.S. specific part of it all. And dang it, I lost my second question, but I will find it somehow when you talk through the other thing. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for that reflection. And I think that's a great kind of summation. And I, I also, like I said before, I really encourage everyone to feel free to do your own research into this. If you feel like, oh, I'm not a professional or I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to like get it right. To be honest with you, no one's getting it right. There's no like if we could get it right, there wouldn't be a problem still. And there obviously is one. And it's been there since the existence of the country of Israel. Oh, so. I also really wanted to kind of throw out there like this storyline I'm giving you is like the bloodless textbook, you know, least connected to culture, least connected to, I don't know, sociological like history. I'm cutting all of the religious context out of it. And I do want to for just one quick minute, I want to throw a shade of religious context on top of this, because when we talk about occupation, which is a big part of the way that this has evolved in the Jewish religious sort of canon, the understanding is that the Jewish people are a religious community and they are also a nation of people. A nation of people who are tied to a specific piece of land. For those who do not have a 
Jewish or Christian background, you might be unfamiliar with this. It's all Googleable, feel free. But all of that land that is currently under dispute is part of the divinely granted land of basically the Jews, quote unquote, granted to them by God in their most sacred religious texts. And so from the the religious conservative Jewish perspective, that land is always going to be seen as their birthright. And so it's really difficult to sort of, I think for a lot of us who are not used to a nationalistic religious nexus, it's very hard to understand that perspective. But for, you know, in the official religious tradition of Judaism, the land itself is a like core part of that. A lot of the religious holidays are specifically based on seasons that happen within Israel. Like you, you can't, you just can't really kind of pull those two things apart. So yes. Question. Uh, when it was, uh, see, this is a hard question, but the thing that comes to mind is when it was Palestine, how did they deal with that? How did they coexist? Did they have an issue coexisting or was everything cool? Alan, we are, oh my God. Do you know how much I would love to dig into the meat of this? I would love it so much. However, <laughs> maybe we can do that on a special. No, but I'm just, I'm being honest yes. with you. You know how I am. You know how I am. I'm just being honest with you. I'm just like, well, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, friend. They was already hanging out there. They were already there. Yo, okay. Super duper duper fast. Okay. Although I would, I would just, it's hurting okay. my heart to not dig into it. Anyway. The Roman Empire rose. At the time that the Roman Empire came into being, (laughs) there were a number of, there was a Jewish dynasty, ruling dynasty that had been living in, managing, ruling a lot of the land known as Israel today. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And so Mm -hmm. when the Romans came in, Um, There were a series of wars that the Jews fought against the Romans. And when I say Jews in this context, I mean the ancient community of Jewish people and the religious community because they were one at that time. So there are two really big moments, um, both of which led to the destruction of the great temple in Jerusalem, which is the holiest site in Judaism. Um, The reconstruction of the high temple is mentioned in a lot of canonical, both Jewish and Christian texts. It has a lot of significance to both communities. It's also the site now known as the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. It's the only remaining structure from the original temple at that time. And so from the destruction of that temple, a lot of the Jewish community that had been living in the territory ended up in exile. So the dynasty was broken. And also you get one of the, I guess you would call it the first diaspora, first Jewish diaspora that spreads across the world. And this is how you end up with Jewish communities in Ethiopia, southern Spain, you know, the Eastern Europe, um, Central Asia, East Asia. Can you give me a time roughly some dates? Sorry. Okay, never mind. Don't worry about it. I'm just I just want to understand. I'm sorry. Dates are helpful, but it's fine. Um, Okay, so we're talking like 70 BCE, like the year 70. Oh, okay. See, I didn't know it was that old. All right, bet. So we can yeah, just like, zoom. We're talking like thousands and thousands of years. We have like, and the, like I said, so other stuff has happened before that. There is some scattering before that, but this is kind of like the big moment where it's like the temple's been broken. The Romans are here. We're being persecuted. You know, our dynasty's gone. Uh, anyway, ignoring all of that, you already have a, G- a Jewish diaspora around the world. And so in collective Jewish religious memory, the breaking of the temple under the Roman empire is the moment that they moved into exile. They started diaspora. And so it really coalesces in this idea of we must return home to our land granted to us by God that we were expelled from. That was Mm -hmm. taken from us millennia ago. Right. So it's deeper than rap. Yeah. And, And it's one of the main reasons that Zionism fixes on the land of Israel for the new homeland for Jewish people, because I think people don't know this. At that time, post-World War II, people were also considering creating a Jewish state in Uganda, in Madagascar, in other random locations around the world that the Western powers were like, hey, well, we don't care about this place. You guys can have that. So there were a lot of discussions about sort of where the new Jewish state would be. 
And it could have not been Israel. It, it ended up being Israel. But I think it's important to just know that like that idea of returning to the land is a core part of like modern Judaism. And by modern Judaism, I mean Judaism post the creation of the Talmud or the oral Torah. Which happened. Which would have been in like 900 or 1100. Again, I just need to know how old the stuff is. 900 is really <laughs> fucking old. So, I mean, but that also helps if hopefully you could follow all of that. I'm still here. You didn't lose me. I'm so sorry, You didn't y'all. lose me. I'm it's so my sorry. fault. It's my fault because I'm chaotic and I, I, I had to because you would have lost me because I, I need dates because I past is relative. Like the collective memory is so short. We are a whole bunch of 10 second Toms and Thomasinas. So part of me wanted you to go through that and be frustrated so people can really see and feel how deep this is to the people who are actually impacted by this on a daily basis. On one side, you have people on both sides. You have people who have been so wronged, so wronged for so long through no fault of their own, struggling to find home and place and meaning and self-determine like cough, cough. Some of us have also been doing for (laughs) a couple hundred years. Eh, but here we are watching them fight. Wait, why is this? My brain is connecting this to the last Black Panther. This, it's giving like the Latinx underwater people fighting with the Wakandans. I hate to see this. I really hate to see it. I hated to watch it happen then in the fictitious thing. So that's ultimately what I'm getting at now. I'm like the wrong people are fighting, I think. I mean, you are talking to a person who I, you know, and I didn't say this at the beginning. I do have a fair amount of religious education, like a, a kind of a lot when it comes to Judaism and Christianity in particular. No, I don't have a degree in theology, but I studied them pretty closely and in a pretty formal setting for a good amount of time. So I do have a, this is one reason I know all of this, you know, and I do speak and read Hebrew. Um, I've read the Torah in the original Hebrew, you know, a lot of the same with the Mishnah, the Gemara, which are other religious books in the canon of Judaism. So I I do have a fair amount of religious knowledge, at least for these uh, religions, which is why I, like I said, I know this information. Like taking off that hat and putting on my like international affairs, quote unquote, pundit SME hat, from my personal perspective, from a very, from purely a theoretical level, I have serious reservations about the idea of religion and nationalism going together. I have serious issues already with, honestly, the idea of nationalism a whole, because it seems to just not go well in general. But religious nationalism creates such an exclusive definition of who can be a citizen and therefore who will matter legally and who cannot be a citizen and therefore will not matter legally that I think that nations that subscribe to that sort of sow the seeds of their own discord early yeah. on. Well, you can't... Oh, because... Go. go. I was just going to say, when you narrow the definition of who can belong, what you're doing is intentionally creating an outside group. And in this instance, and if we're talking about sort of... And this is, I think, where the discourse can get so messy and so many people want to go off on these tangents... I personally don't think they're helpful when it comes to creating solutions, which is why I don't engage in most of that esoteric argumentation. But there are a lot of arguments about this conflict, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, that specifically are about, well, who really has the best right to the land? Well, whose land is it really? And the answer can be everybody and nobody. It should be everybody. And I strongly (laughs) believe in this instance. It's not even to me, that's not even a valuable no, way not. to think it's of this. Not. It isn't. It truly isn't because it was somebody's land until it wasn't <laughs> like they've already shown better than anybody could say that they don't actually. And the, the day I'm putting in quotes, don't actually care about the land. The other thing that I was thinking when you were talking um, was there's it's hard to have nationalism that's not harmful or exclusionary without homogeneity, homogeneity, sameness. Everybody has to be the same in order for the nationalism to work. And then the other thing I was thinking is just like they obviously have no nothing on the book saying separation of church and state over there. They can't. No, no. No. Right. In fact, the religious authority is specifically written into the balance of power within the Israeli state. The religious authority is written. So into that it. inherently is going to scramble your average American brain. 
And again, these are things that I feel compelled to point out (laughs) as you're (laughs) metabolizing this content with your own biases at the forefront, since I'm the bias lady. Um, I would, I would reframe, I would reframe a little bit and just say our government is structured to be, to directly prohibit its, its own functioning in the same way that the Israeli government is, is intended to function. That is better and clearer. Yes. That what she said. Um, so, (laughs) so again, like it's, that has always been a struggle for me. Cause I'm just like, wait, 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 why, how are y'all? It isn't the math isn't mathing for me, but, uh, it really is. Now this is so complicated. It is girl. And honestly, I'm, I'm oversimplifying this in such a horrendous way that literally every Middle East person, scholar, professional who listens to this is going to be full of judgments and like corrections for me. And I totally hear that and take it from everybody. You're hundred percent right. Uh, and also I'm going to just throw out there again, this is not even my area of expertise. Your girl is an Africanist. That was the area that I was the most focused on. I will say I do have a background in conflict resolution and post-conflict justice. So I do understand a lot of the mechanics of how a conflict happens and how resolution can occur and often reasons it breaks down. And I think that's the lens I want to be clear about. Like that's the lens with which I'm approaching my own biases and opinions about, like I said, ethno and religious nationalism. From a conflict resolution perspective, focusing on those divisive identities in a situation like this is extremely prohibitive when it comes to like building a solution for all parties moving forward. And at the same time, I'm a black woman. So if we're talking about justice work and restitution work, identities are critical. And everyone's identity has to be acknowledged and there has to be equity and acknowledgement of harm done in order for things to move forward. So... I guess saying all that to say, I agree with you, this is real complicated. And that's like another layer and lens on the complicatedness of the situation. And to anyone who has notes, send us an email at offdutydiplomat.gmail.com. You are also more than welcome to come on the podcast. Eh, you could try. Yeah, you could come. We'll, you could say you want to we'll come. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. We'll, uh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> but I'm just like, hey, if you got a problem, yo, come say it to my, to say it to my face. It's chess. And it's and it's fair too because you know, like I said, man, I feel like there are as many perspectives on this conflict as there are literal human beings who are aware of this conflict. Um yeah. and it's it's rough. So I do want to get back to one thing you asked about originally that I did not address, and I'm so sorry because I got off on all I these. also remember my other question. Okay. I did. I wrote it down. Okay. <laughs> do I you want to do the other one first? Pre-Roman <laughs> history because i just love it so much (laughs) no it's my fault because no yo like seriously i my brain has to be able to wrap its head around the concept of time like the 40s is different from 90 bc which is different from so like again if we're going to try to do this the way i think we want to do this and make it so easy a five-year-old could get it (laughs) i'm gonna keep bringing it down and force you to simplify just so this can be an entryway in an accessible entryway into additional exploration. That's we, we can try, <laughs> you know, but I just said it out loud. So like, even if we fall short of the goal, that was the intention. Bless our it. hearts. <laughs> Bless our hearts. We're, we're doing our best. I really am doing our best. Anyway, I want to, I just want to quickly go back to this idea of occupation. So yes. in the 1980s, there was what uprising. And from the Palestinian perspective, this is their uprising of sort of like rebellion, and physically fighting back against what they perceive and what they're calling the Israeli occupation of their land. And this is also when you get a lot of the tightening of the restrictions around both Gaza and the West Bank. So you get these fences, you get checkpoints, um, you get all of these security structures around the area to avoid things like literally what's happened this weekend, which is guerrilla fighting, attacks, etc., in cities across Israel. Also, what that leads to, though, is like a hardening of the lines between the two groups, because now everyone's feeling put upon, you know, the Israelis are feeling like, well, you guys are coming out here and attacking us. And they are primarily civilian targets that are being hit, which is, I think, for everyone. And I think we can all agree attacking civilian targets is abhorrent. And it's abhorrent whether you are a guerrilla fighter, whether you are a government. I mean, it is just jacked up to go after people who are completely unarmed and are not actively playing a role. Having said that, on the Palestinian side, it's like, well, wait a minute. 
I'm not personally doing anything. I'm out here just trying to live my life on the land. And instead of being able to get out and do work or see my family or move around, I'm facing increasing restrictions by a government that doesn't recognize me as a citizen. And therefore, a lot of the oh, a lot of the conventions that um, give any citizen freedom within their country, right to a fair trial, right to, you know, certain conventions, right to petition your government, blah, blah, blah. In most government charters, constitutions, foundational documents, they explicitly only give those rights to citizens and possibly to permanent residents, depending on the country. So this is a thing maybe a lot of Americans don't understand, and they clearly don't understand it on shows like Locked Up Abroad. You actually don't have the same rights in other countries that you have in America. And I know that that, at least for some of us, it probably feels like, oh my God, it's common sense. Who doesn't know that? But uh, in very explicit no. ways, when you are in another country's land, if, if a citizen in that country is arrested or whatever, detained, they have X rights laid out in that document. You do not. You should assume that you do not unless otherwise clearly stated or defined you've done the research. It's highly possible that you could be arrested and detained indefinitely. You have no rights in that country. And so when you have a situation like, you know, the Israelis and Palestinians where people are living so close, but if one's in trouble on the other one's territory, you know, and it's you get into this whole big sort of retaliatory, very bad will you know, sort of grudge holding, building and building, building generation after generation, because by the time we get to the 80s, it's been 40 years since the formation of Israel. So you have a whole generation that's come up living under what is called, quote unquote, occupation. And that, you know, it that breeds its own resentment yeah. and its own narrative of lifestyle, et cetera. So I did want to talk about that briefly, because then we get to fast forward to 2005 and there's a series of attacks and uprising Within the Gaza Strip, which at, or within Gaza, I should say, which at the time was not completely Palestinian. And this is also where I should talk about settlements. So <laughs> this is so tricky. Um, across the Palestinian held territories, there have always been Israelis who have pushed to live within those borders. And for a lot of people, this is a they feel religiously driven, almost passive, quote unquote, reconquering uh, of right. that land. Um, under another name, gentrification. Or honestly, settlers, settlers and oh. settlements. They think they are settling the <gasps> land. Mm, like the folks who went west originally. Mm, we know we know all exactly. about that here in Te- Tejas. <laughs> exactly. And so you have these little individuals at first and then communities popping up across the West Bank and also within Gaza. In 2005, the fighting between those communities got so bad that Israel effectively said no more Israelis living within the boundaries of Gaza. So all Israeli citizens were expelled or exiled from Gaza in that time period. Was that a good idea? Because of how bad the violence like, got. Oh, man, I don't know. It just seems like these solutions again, <laughs> like they've just been making bad decisions on bad decisions. And now we're now we got a war. That's probably not fair, but I, I don't know. know. <laughs> it, and it's oversimplification, too, because I haven't talked about the history and the rise of Hamas. I haven't talked about the history and the rise of the PLO, which are the two different Palestinian governing bodies. They are not the same. The PLO that governs the West Bank is not the same as Hamas. Hamas is an explicitly military, paramilitary, and at this point, terrorist organization. Like, not the same. They are. They are not the same. And I think of. I guess to boil a lot of this down and a lot of what I want to say in this conversation down is that it's number one. It's more complicated than you think it is. Number two. Um, as easy as it would be to lump groups of people together because they seem like they're similar, that's not necessarily the case. And I think that, again, the thing to focus on is the tragic and appalling loss of life and the way that this situation is impacting all parties' ability to live in safety, security, stability, and prosperity in any part of this region, conflict situation, fill in the blank. Everyone is suffering 
because of the way things function now. And unfortunately, I don't think there is a peaceful solution in sight. Damn, I was going to ask you that. That was the question that I forgot and re-remembered. What diplomatic measures can be taken now? Are there any? By Israel or by the U.S. or by other countries? D, all of the above. Sorry, I'm a big question person. This is what I do. You know, (laughs) I'm sorry. The part we didn't talk about here is Israel's status as a nuclear power, which complicates things as well. Yeah. Okay. So let's 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 do that before we talk about diplomacy or not. Just a little. (laughs) I'm sorry, Danielle. It's a little baby detour. I literally I can't. It doesn't make nothing post. 73 makes sense unless you know that Israel is a nuclear power. And you know how that plays into the global. Maybe there's a way we can add in chapters or timestamps so people can try to follow this. Because this has been a very neurodivergent conversation. I'm in it. No, I'm I'm in it. I I hope y'all can follow. I'm like, she ain't lost me yet. So you got one listener. So Hmm. I'm, I'm massively, again, oversimplifying everything, which is hopefully making it more digestible. But the point is. Israel is a nuclear power. We, the United States, directly assisted Israel in becoming a nuclear power. Now, that's not me revealing anything classified. It's public record. You can Google this and get all the information you need. But uh, because Israel is a nuclear power, that means that they're playing on a different level on the global stage. So all of those countries who I talked about before who were sort of guilt ridden at the beginning and it, a lot of their Support for Israel was based on that sort of like traditional, like, oh, we failed everybody relationship or, you know, just sort of shame based relationship has now evolved into a and we need Israel because if we're looking at basically you could say from the 70s forward, you know, the fall of Iran to the Revolutionary Guard, the rise of Saddam Hussein, uh, Gaddafi, all of kind of the big bad guys you could quote unquote, in the Middle East, Israel has always been a very stable, quote unquote, partner for the United States and for those Western nations. And by Western, you can just think of anyone who's a member of NATO. All NATO members have to have an opinion on this. And so because Israel's a nuclear nation and nobody else around them is, and this is one reason we work so hard to keep, quote unquote, weapons of mass destruction out of Iraq, Iran, other nations in the region, Israel has a, they're operating at a different level of defense preparedness, ability to respond, um, capability period than any of their neighbors. Like they are far and away the greatest military power in the Middle East, like bar none. You could almost honestly argue that they're one of the biggest and most effective military powers in the world. I would probably argue that, honestly. Help them get there. We did. United States. So if you just Google U.S. and Israel military collaboration, you will find a long paper trail of gifted planes, boats, missiles, guns, other large weapons, and the coupe de resistance, the Kipat Brazil, also known as the Iron Dome missile defense system, which has the ability to deflect missiles headed for populated Israeli areas into non-populated Israeli areas. So that Iron Dome is one of the reasons that the casualties are lower than they otherwise would be in this conflagration, because as soon as you're shooting missiles out of, let's say, Gaza towards a place like Sderot or Ashkelon, the Iron Dome system activates and it will knock that missile off course into a less populated area or an unpopulated part How of the desert. How does it know? Is that smart? What? Yes. That's crazy. It's extremely sensitive. It's extremely sophisticated. It is probably the most, it is the most sophisticated and advanced missile defense system in the entire world. And it was developed with strong partnership between Israel and the United States. They could not have developed it without us. Damn. Well, look at that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we do have a vested interest in helping out uh, the little homie. Hardcore. Because we gave him the big guns. Fun. All right. And so they're acting as in many ways, or we would like to think they're acting as a proxy for us in the region that we don't exist in. Okay. Now, what I just gave you is fully the like realist, neocon, you know, hardcore, cold-blooded military version of the U.S.-Israel relationship. The fact of the matter is also 
there are a ton of Israeli citizens that are American dual citizens, which it's itself creates a relationship. And Girl, Netanyahu a, went to high school in Philly. <laughs> yes. Yes. And there's a significant portion of the American population that because of their religious or familial or both relationships feels a strong connection to Israel, strong vested interest in whatever happens to Israel, Israeli politics. And we have this real tethered relationship when it comes to our internal politics impacting their internal politics, which you should stay tuned and listen to season two of the Octavity Diplomat to plug, learn plug, more about. Plug. <laughs> no, you should. Okay. I said all of that just to kind of give some context for like where we're at now. So Hamas is attacking. So I think one big question is where do they get these weapons? Because there's been... Where do they get the weapons? How do they know what to hit? What? Mm-hmm. WTF and why? All that. Hopefully that's information that will come out in the months and years to come. Um, I think everyone, especially the Israeli public, is going to want to know how this level of intelligence failure happened. Um, because this is a truly catastrophic level of failure from the foremost intelligence apparatus, I would argue, in the world. Maybe the Russians are competing, but the Israelis, to me, are really the gold standard when it comes to intelligence structure and protocol. And it's honestly, for me, as a person who worked there and saw a lot of these government installations, visited a number of military installations, I really saw the relationship up close and personal. It is unfathomable how this level of lapse occurred. Mm-hmm. But then, OK, so going back to the question, I forgot that we remembered and then we had to take a, a bomb detour to, to get to it. It's OK. Sorry. No, I made you talk about B.C. It's, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so and maybe this might be a good thing to end it on because I don't know how you're feeling. But like, again, I'm starting to feel like I did after that visa conversation. My brain hurts. Um, <laughs> what diplomatic measures can be taken now? Are there any? How can we get out of this? Well, by we, I mean, they, uh, all of us get out of this without that thousand turning into tens and thousands and hundreds of thousands. I think the real question now, it seems like from what's being reported, the Israeli Defense Forces have a handle, at least a handle on the ground fighting. So the street to street guerrilla fighting that's happening now in the cities and communities surrounding the Gaza Strip, it looks like they mostly have a handle on that. And they're now pushing militants back into Gaza or back towards that border. I think the real question is how far Netanyahu and the Israeli apparatus is going to take retaliatory bombing in Gaza. If you Google it now, you'll see buildings being blown up. Refugee camps have been destroyed. So it's, to me at least, very a situation where it would be really, in some ways, easy for the Israeli establishment to pretty much decimate the people of Gaza in a really catastrophic and devastating way with a very minute amount of firepower. Because of, of the damage and the destabilization that already, already existed within right, Gaza. It's already hanging on by a thread. They already were having issues with core yep. infrastructure, yep. water, roads, food, you know, uh, medical care especially. So it, it's, it wouldn't take a lot to kind of completely devastate the entire space. And unfortunately, it's very possible that... I think it'll just I think this is where the diplomacy comes in. What I would expect to see is partner nations counseling moderation. Well, um, Ireland has already come out pretty, (laughs) pretty openly, or at least there was I saw this video of this one guy who did this whole entire speech (laughs) about how he feels that Ireland should position themselves to support Palestine specifically. Like I said, man, there's not anywhere in anywhere that does not have a dog in this fight. <laughs> and <laughs> again, that's an opinion. Well, yeah, in Ireland, given their relationship with their big brother and stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> From a conflict resolution lens. Yeah. What I would expect to see, you know, I think the first sort of rally around the flag moment has passed because it's clear that Netanyahu and the IDF have a handle on containing the situation. So at the beginning, you saw the U.S., France, Germany, all the sort of big allies come out very much in support of Israel and in support of, you know, the victims and those who have been injured and and who are still being held hostage. 
I think the na- the next big diplomatic push is going to be number one, dealing with this hostage crisis yeah. and figuring out how that's going to function. Um, and number two, again, counseling restraint from Netanyahu and Netanyahu's government when it comes to striking within Gaza. And I think this is maybe one reason that Hamas took those hostages and is holding them within Gazan territory, because now whenever Netanyahu orders a strike, he may or may not be killing all the hostages. And the hostages. Okay. Tinfoil hat question incoming. Could this be (laughs) an opportunity to take Gaza? Like as somebody who's, I'm not, I'm not conflating the two because they're not the same. But what has happened to New Orleans after Katrina, nobody could have ever thought was going to happen. As a marketer and a strategist, I know that there's always opportunity in a crisis. I also know that when you break it, whoever has the most money, power, influence gets to buy it and fix it. These are things that I know through my lived experience. Is could this be that? Um, it certainly could. Only time will tell. Netanyahu might take this as an excuse to quote unquote retake Gaza or claim the entire territory. There's a really extreme far-right coalition within the Israeli government that has risen to power in the last 10 years, in many ways aided by the Trump administration. And so Those people, you know, the far right, the religious right in Israel would love nothing more than a quote unquote united, unified, I should say, Israel Mm. with no West Bank and no Gaza. And so this might be the moment that they act on that. I don't know, uh, but I do think it's a reasonable possibility to entertain, especially because you just looked at that map. And every time there's a war, those borders get redrawn. They do. Like, y'all, we have, I'm going to send you this link. Like, it, the map is what did it for me. I'm like, wait, and this Transjordan, I need to know more about Transjordan. What? <laughs> if how it was excluded from the provisions of the Palestine mandate? Like, who decided to not include that? There are just all these big decisions that I just don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. It, it's like a, a golden age and also a massive anything that's a golden moment for diplomacy is also probably a big fail moment for diplomacy because it means we had to make some really hard compromises and hard trade-offs and we hope for the best but almost always those trade-offs become the foundation of the next conflict right it's just like do you think those people like just you know have their cigars pat themselves on the backs like all right yeah we did it good job go team since at the time we're discussing one of those dudes probably would have been winston churchill yeah oh well all right yeah okay Uh, This has been an absolutely wild episode of the Off-Duty Diplomat. Um, I know. We are so, I'm so, I'm just going to apologize for me. First of all, again, real sorry for oversimplifying. So sorry for overgeneralizing. I hope it's very clear that I care first and foremost about the human toll that these events take on actual human beings, far and above documents, belief systems, uh, and just like random political aspirations, all of that pales in comparison to the human toll and suffering that exists because of what's going on. And secondarily, I do just want to be very upfront about, listen, I know I don't have all the information. I know I don't come with all of the highest credentials or the best background, but I did have some experience in this. I am decently educated on the topic. So here's my very simplified, watered down take you can take it or leave it. Um, as Fallon said, feel free to email us if you feel like there's something I missed that had to be mentioned or absolutely needed to be expressed. I know I missed a lot. I know I didn't say a lot of what is relevant to this, but I did just really want to respond in the light of what occurred. There are a lot of people who I worked with and I care about still and people who I just knew from my time there who I knew would be impacted by this. And I just want to these moments, these rare glimmers where we have a real human nexus to sort of the esoteric work of diplomacy. I just wanted to take a chance and call out and go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, no, don't apologize. I second everything that you said. I also feel that I hope that anybody that is working or trying to do anything in that region is taking care of themselves, is trying to do their best to be safe. 
Um, I would implore anybody else talking about this to not forget about the people. Um, and yeah, my, my heart is with everyone suffering there, no matter what they look like, no matter what they believe, period. My heart is not with the colonizers ever. <laughs> I mean, both of those things are true. <laughs> so yes. I hope this helped people. I know it helped me. Um, I think I'm going into the rest of this news coverage with a little bit more information to allow me to make decisions on my own. Also, forgive me if I offended. That was not my intention. I'm clearly not the smartest person on this specific subject. And I'm truly seeking to understand. That's where all my questions came from. A real, real important internal need to understand as best I can. Love that. Um, and yeah, that's that. Off Duty Diplomat is an oral memoir of my career in the Foreign Service. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love a review. Thanks for listening.